Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. I'll start off by saying something counterintuitive. If you haven't read Joe Clock's story about the anchor outs of Richardson Bay in the May issue, stop listening and do so immediately. I can't compress its charm, intelligence, humor, and compassion into a podcast intro. Like a hot drink on a cold day, it should be enjoyed slowly. I spoke with Joe, who's an associate editor here at Harper's, about his reporting process, the ways in which the 2008 financial crisis reshaped the country, and an anecdote or two that then make it into print. Start with an easy question. When did you first encounter the anchor outs? Because this story takes place over several years. Well, I first encountered them face-to-face in 2015, but um, I had been living in San Francisco from 2010 to 12, I think, and um, a few of my friends had grown up in Marin County where Sausalito is, and uh, I believe one of them originally told me about them. I I think my initial impression of it was probably that the people were all living there more by choice, where I think I came to discover that that was a bit more complicated. When you went down and actually saw them and started making connections with them, when did you realize that this was actually a story? I had always sort of wanted to make connections with them, thinking there would be some sort of story there. But I think I, I initially thought it would be just sort of a, here's a curious community of outsiders living on the water. And I think I became intrigued at it as something as something that I would want to invest years into, as I realized that it it what I'm there is a positive spirit, and some people certainly are there by choice, like Larry in the story. But when I started to see that there was also this sort of undercurrent of uh, of grimness or helplessness that also kind of went along with the like high spirits and good humor. Yeah. And you have this real cross-section of America evident in the anchor outs where you have some older people. And then you have somebody like Rose, who's a single mom, who has ongoing health issues, can't really get those resolved. And so do you actually having been there and not just writing about it, do you feel like it is sort of a, kind of a good sense of what a lot of Americans deal with? To some extent, I would say it's in some ways um it's a good representation of a lot of different type of americans uh, as i mentioned in the piece though i think that the it is almost entirely white not entirely but mm-hmm. in that sense it's not very good but I, I i do think it in a lot of ways with sort of medical problems and um just sort of issues with money it's a very extreme version of that uh i i was shocked particularly with rose that she was dealing with ms in those conditions and Mm -hmm. um at least initially by choice i mean it's one of the few or as some people told me last but i was never really able to hammer down if there are any others left places where you can actually do this where you can just Mm. show up and live on an abandoned boat in the United States. Do you feel like there's a sort of a echo here with Jessica Bruder's story about camper force, the 
elderly Amazon laborers, I could just call them laborers, who uh, they're seasonal employees and they live out of their cars. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think there are there are some differences just in the maybe living conditions. And also I would say one, I think, key thing about that differentiates maybe something like the anchor out community from um, an itinerant and I believe seasonal community, mm-hmm. right? With the well, they're nomadic, Amazon workers, the, right? Yeah. Um, in, in this case, I think that a lot of people are drawn to the water or to the anchorage to Richardson Bay in the same way that maybe I was initially curious about it, where it sounds like this sort of fascinating place where you don't have to worry about the pressures of, say, modern life in the same way that maybe one does or one feels on them when they've been working in an office for 10 years. But I think what happens there is that for some people, at least, it starts out as a choice, but as time passes, it becomes something where you really have no no way back or no easy way back because you know, you might show up with $1,000 and that might, you know, it might even carry you through a couple of years. But once that money's gone, you know, you, you're in a pretty tough spot. You've been leading a pretty hard life. There's, you know, a lot of drugs out there, a lot of violence out there. And you, you find yourself in all different, you know, states after you've been out there long enough. And so I think for some people, maybe it isn't always so clear that they can't turn back or that they're shutting a door on their former life. It's not so clear when they arrive as it later becomes. And that's not true for everybody. Certainly mm-hmm. some people choose to be there and some people eventually get out of there. So I, I don't want to speak for everybody there because it's a pretty diverse group in that sense. But I, I think that's true for a lot of the people. What did Bo call it? It was like a... Um... A, like a multi-flavored gumbo or oh, something? Oh, that was innate. He called <laughs> innate. it uh, an ever-living gumbo. An ever-living um, gumbo, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, he was, I mean, very much, I think, to his credit, because uh, he he was the first uh, anchor out I really connected with. And he, uh, once we kind of became friends, he, he made a lot of effort to introduce me to other people. And he always stressed... Um, that his is just sort of one voice uh, among all of them. And, and he is particularly loud voice. I mean, he's mm-hmm. sort of, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say the like town crier because that's <laughs> more negative than I mean, but in a way like the community lawyer, like mm. he, I, I mean, he doesn't have a law degree, but he, you know, reads Supreme court cases. He's taught himself a lot of law and he actually, over the time I knew him, he, he spent that entire time working on a Supreme Court filing, I guess, uh, where he wanted to argue that the town or the city or the Bay Association had no right to um, board their boats because their boats were not technically vessels they, because they couldn't move in the water. And actually, I talked to some maritime lawyers who said it's not a terrible argument to make so well he has plenty of time to study the law presumably certainly yes (laughs) Yes. so i guess with that being said how do a lot of the anchor outs spend their days is it just sort of like 
you get to be on summer vacation all the time? Or is it a little bit more, I'm trying to survive? You know, there are over 100 out there. And I got to know, well, maybe eight of them. So it's a hard question to say in general. I mean, I would say it seemed like uh, Innate spent a lot of his days working on those court cases. Mm. Um, everybody seemed to have some sort of hobby, like Dreamweaver and Bo were both painters, so they spent a lot of time doing that. Um, I mean, on nice days, there's, I think there's a lot of time hanging out, but also, you know, daily tasks take more effort. Like, mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, church vans that come and different churches in the area will feed them on different days, but you know, you have to go wait for this van. You have to be there at the right time. Then you go and then you're there until the van comes back. So easily, you know, that could maybe be four hours of your day. But one thing I would say that is pretty, at least to me, was pretty interesting about how their day-to-day -day time is sort of allotted is that because the tide goes in and out, they can't get to and from shore anytime they want. And so they very much have to uh, plan their days around when they can go to shore, when they can go back. So I was particularly surprised to see um, that, you know, they have tide books. And like, um, I crashed on a Nate's boat uh, one of the first times I was there and remember just waking up to him just leafing through a tide book, mm -hmm. planning his day around it. And um, so, th I mean, that struck me as interesting because it doesn't go in and out at the same time every day. So there's right. each day is different, but they're all on that same changing schedule. Well, we all probably, uh, all of our lives are probably guided by the tides, but we just don't know. <laughs> it's just all or like the moon pulling on us, which is also guided by the tides. Who's to say? Well, um, some of the anchor outs would have some things to say about that. <laughs> yeah, they all sound really cool and very thoughtful woven throughout this is this question of an unsolved murder or what could be an unsolved murder were there ever any times you felt maybe i'm not totally safe in this situation but i'm going to trust the people around me for the most part no because anytime i was out on somebody's boat it was somebody i knew pretty well because they wouldn't invite you out until you knew them pretty well under otherwise so most of the time no i will say though there was one time when I was sleeping on a Nate's boat where I could just hear a rowboat or um, I don't, I assume it was a rowboat um, moving right by his boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had heard a lot that, that, that there are a lot of robberies and they had been increasing in recent years. And that struck me. Uh, it, I remember having this thought of like, huh, somebody could just come through that door right now and there's nobody who could help me. And I, I do remember just wishing in that moment that the night would pass. But again, I mean, that's, you know, that's what all of them live with every single day. So they're living according to tides. There is no real sort of security, not necessarily a ton of physical security. How do they get food except for what is coming from these church fans? Like, how do they, what, what are the means by which they exist in a world that, you know, we all need to have money? Well, to some extent, I would say that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I, 
I mean, some of them I know would do do odd jobs. I, I, like I remember meeting one guy who uh, he used to be a professor, um, and he would do construction work in the area on the side. But it, he he might be one that I would categorize as somebody who who chose to continue to be there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that when I asked those type of questions, I ever got very satisfactory answers. But um, for for as critical at times as the piece may seem of like the Sausalito community, I, I think a lot of residents do help them out. There, there's a lot of sympathy for them as well. Um, like there's a woman who, at least when I was going there, was just constantly apparently bringing mesh bags filled with clementines in there. So I think there's a, a, a lot of giving involved. A lot of them have gardens in 10-gallon buckets on their boats, and um, they help each other out when they have food and don't have food. But yeah, to some extent, uh, I, I certainly don't think I could give any sort of general answer to that question. Hmm. One thing that, you know, I remember as a child watching 2020, which is a news program and seeing John Stossel, who was always out there trying to prove that actually homeless people, they get a lot of food. Actually, they kind of choose to do this. Actually, they're lazy. They could get a job if they want to. So I mentioned that because there is a lot of times a value judgment made on homeless people or people who are sort of in a kind of a precarious state. You know, it's like, oh, they're not working hard enough. They're not doing blah, blah, blah. It's part of your hope in writing this piece, sort of helping destigmatize some of that judgment or pointing out that it is kind of, it's unnecessary. One of the things that surprised me a lot about the sort of judgments maybe that I would hear around town is it did seem like a lot of the people weren't very aware of the sort of complexity and structure of the community out there. And I mean, by that, I mean things like, um, so one example is, and this is all what was told to me by various anchor outs, but that, I've met anchorites out there who say they have as many as 12 boats that are sort of understood to be their boat. And that mm-hmm. uh, when somebody new arrives to the community, if they if they like that person, they'll sell that boat to them for as little as a dollar, say. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they, they're growing food. And if somebody doesn't have food, they'll, you know, row food over and help. Um, and there's a sort of network there. And there's a network about repairing boats where even if it's somebody you don't like, you'll go and you'll help repair it because the next time could be you as as innate would say you never know when your rent's going to be due Mm -hmm. and so there is this sort of far more complicated set of day-to-day obligations that they're constantly fulfilling And, and even you know keeping your keeping your boat above water when you don't have any money it's a constant effort to do so and so i think that um when you realize how much work goes into just surviving, it becomes impossible to see them with the sort of cliched views that they're they're lazy or that they they're not doing anything. And it actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but it reminds me of this book, Sidewalk, by Mitchell Dunier. I, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but um, 
uh, he follows for years these booksellers, I think in the 90s uh, in Greenwich Village. And one of, I think, the more surprising things he uncovers is that there's a pretty complicated way in which there are, there are different roles to play in the bookseller economy, where there are they're the people who sleep at night in the best spots, and then they sell those spots to the booksellers during the day. And then the booksellers will pay money to various people to take care of their books at night while they go and sleep, and they do the whole thing over again. So there, there, there's even sort of classes and economic structure that, that you would never see just walking down the street. And I think this is very much the same way. And I think that um, maybe the more you see that, uh, with a community like this, perhaps the the more likely it is that you know you, society would provide pathways out for them. Because if you're imagining them as just not working and hanging around all day and having bad hygiene or, or whatever the statement may be, you're it becomes hard to imagine them suddenly working a job. But if you imagine them in this sort of perpetual um, running down this perpetual list of tasks, then just just to survive, then you see that they're in a way going to work too. It's mm-hmm. just a different and arguably more difficult job. And so then I think it becomes easier to imagine giving them a sort of economic employment pathway out should they choose it, which again, not all of them would, I think. Right. We haven't gotten to the point that they wouldn't have these boats unless something in our society, let's loosely our society happened, (sighs) namely the 2008 financial crisis. I guess you mentioned briefly that, you know, the population started increasing, but I guess whose boats are these? Right. So like there's always been, I mean, for, you know, a very long time, decades and decades, there have been boats that are abandoned there and because it's an anchorage and so you can just drop anchor and leave i think it has always been at least how it's been explained to me um it's always been sort of the wealthier perhaps boat owners in san francisco or in oakland or in berkeley who that i think they just decide that it's not worth the maintenance or the repairs anymore. At least that's what's been said to me. I, I don't know a ton about how wealthy boat ownership works, but um, <laughs> that's not worth writing about. <laughs> <laughs> I think Yacht Magazine has that covered. You're gonna get um, some angry comments from them, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think that perhaps the 2008 crash moved more and more people out of the I can afford a boat category. Mm-hmm. And so it increased it on that end. And to some extent, I'm sure, um, though it's hard to find any number on something like this, it increased the number of people who needed any sort of home. Mm-hmm. And if you have no home, a boat is appealing, I suppose. You mentioned that you spent the night on Nate's boat. Yeah. And you're still in contact with him. So I guess... How did your friendship develop, and is there anything about him that didn't end up in the final piece? I, in the last few months, have lost contact with him because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he he actually inherited $80,000 about from the sale of his mom's house. His mom had died years earlier, but uh, there was some sort of... I think family debate over selling it. I I never really understood the full story there, but um, 
when he got this money, yeah, he moved to the desert in Arizona. And I, I think eventually maybe sort of uh, probably lost interest in continuing to endlessly have me uh, ask him questions about his life. But an interesting thing about the arc of our friendship is when I first met him, he spent a lot of time sort of airing these uh, grievances of, I would say, varying convincingness about uh, critiques of the world ashore, I guess you would say. And um, one of the things he would always say is that he didn't want to live on land anymore. And by on land, he just means in the sort of society we're all familiar with. Bricks and sticks. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he felt that um, it was governed by fear, is what he would say. And so one of the first times I was spending a lot of time with him on his boat, I asked him uh, what he meant by that. And um, so he he told me this the following story, which he told me came from, quote, an old children's book. <laughs> and uh, just to preface this, I have tried very hard and never been able to find any reference to this in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he told me this story, which... He said like this, there's a walrus and a puffin hanging out in the snow. And um, one day they see this uh, strange thing poking out from the surface. And so they go over and they start to dig around it. And they eventually see that it's a wagon that's been buried from a nearby village. And so they keep digging and they finally get the wagon out. And then as they're pulling it out, the puffin falls into the hole and the puffin gets stuck in the hole and he's stuck in, stuck for days and days um and he almost freezes and dies down there but eventually they get him out so anyway they grow concerned about this wagon and so they put it on a glacier and push it out to sea and then one day another puffin wanders by and says what's that thing out there in the distance pointing at the wagon and they go i don't see anything and uh, then Nate goes, as he's telling us, he goes, and that's the end of the story, but it's the beginning of the mindset of fear. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I didn't ever really know what to do with it. I sort of had that sense, I, I want to use this. I, I really <laughs> like this. But I just could never quite figure out what he meant. And I asked him so many times, maybe in the next year or so, like, uh, what, you know, what do you mean by that? Tell me more about this mindset of fear. Could never really get a total grasp around how that related to modern society. But then, uh, a couple of years later, I suppose, after he, he calls me, I think, when he inherited this money to tell me that he's leaving, uh, he's leaving the Anchorage. And, um, he, he gets this check, but uh, of course, the initial problem is he doesn't have any form of ID. Uh, and so he goes to the bank um, with his partner, Melissa, and he tries to cash the check. And the uh, teller is like, well, we, we can't cash this check. You know, you don't you don't have any ID. And um, I, I don't remember the, exactly the exchange, but essentially... He's like, but I'm Nathaniel Archer. Like, what do you ID? Why do you need ID? And they're like, well, we we just can't do this. And so 
he has to go get some ID. And as he's telling me this story, he just goes, it's so ridiculous. It's just why, how can I be me and not cash a check written out to me? Like, well, how could this be the way it is? And I was like, but you, you can see why a, a bank wouldn't just let you say you're you and he's without ID. And he goes, no, man, I feel like I'm staring at a fucking wagon right now. And I was like, oh, that's what you mean. Damn. Okay. This story, this fable, this children's book yes. that may or may not exist. <laughs> Teaching the youth of America about the mindset of fear, as fear. most children's authors do. <laughs> um, throughout the article, there are these little um, things that people say that are maybe on the new agey spectrum, on the hippie spectrum, sort of and representative of what San Francisco and California have represented in sort of the popular consciousness and, you know, as sort of the edge of America or like the home of the counterculture of the anchors you met, how many of those do you feel like were attracted to Shangri-Lito for that reason, or just were in that area because they were participating in some sort of counterculture and were like, well, I don't want to go to a commune, so I'll just go here. I wouldn't say that, I mean, perhaps with the older ones, that tended to be more the case. But most of the counterculture stuff, I think, exists more, because there, there, there's a separate community in Richardson Bay, which is the actual uh, houseboats that are along the shore, which are today owned mostly by pretty wealthy people. Mm. But in the 60s and 70s, that was a counterculture community. And so you have some people from that time. Um, and, and, so the, and so that's very much tied, I think, to the culture of Sausalito. Um, but among the anchor outs, I wouldn't say that that in general is that strong of a impression. I, I, I think more, more they're attracted I mean, a lot of them, again, I can't speak for everybody, attracted by the idea that it's a home and it's free. And perhaps maybe, to some extent, some of them dropping out of society. But I, I wouldn't say there's a strong sort of 60s or 70s vibe among them now. You know, you were sort of locating this within the larger culture of squatting. Why do you think that it has kind of gone out of fashion to be a squatter? Because, I mean, I'm not going to say... I shouldn't say fashion, but as an alternative way to live. Because, um, I mean, I just think of something like the decline of Western civilization, part three. And the way those people in the film live is so radical. It's very, very different. Whereas now it, there's sort of this kind of mainstreaming of subculture, like this constant sort of, you know, if, the, if it's through the internet, through music, through whatever, it's always very close to the surface. And it's not like, you know, people who are skaters, uh, you know, sleep all day and run around all night. It's very much like people have jobs and people have homes. And there's not like squatting is not a thing people is not like owned in that way anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't know. I I don't know that in my head I even put this that much in that framework of squatters because mm. number one this is growing in size but number two i and again i mean i don't want to speak for the entire community um 
but it wasn't my impression that there was um, a strong, the culture that was there seemed to be the culture that developed organically as uh, it, it doesn't seem like the culture of the anchor out community is what people were trying to participate in or become a part of. I, because I mean, you really, a lot of the people out there, um, they're at least I've been told you, you, you don't really see them. They're retired sailors who just want to, you know, they want to live that life in solitude well, I guess they're not retired if they're still living on a boat, but um, yeah. So, so you, I mean, you have some people who go there because they're hiding out. You know, they're drug dealers, and I think that is one of the things that has increased and has led to a lot of violence. And then you have sailors that you never see. You have people who do it by choice. Um, then you have this sort of uh, maybe smaller subset of older countercultural types um but i mean you have so many different people there i i don't think there's a um common sense of culture in terms of what draws people to it i think the the draw is just sort of economic uh and perhaps to some extent at least initially the lifestyle right but i mean like everybody is trying to do more with less now like mm. everybody is getting squeezed except for the one percent do you want to venture a guess as to why this just this isn't like a force in new york where we have so many empty buildings or empty luxury apartments where people really could just go in if they wanted but there's not that drive as there was in the 70s or 80s to do that yeah i i don't i don't really know but i would say that i i believe the uh, number of homeless people has been increasing in mm -hmm. New York City. So, yeah. um, you know, if if you look at the anchorage perhaps as a um, result of the same same forces, uh, then I think perhaps you could say the same thing is happening in New York. There's just no giant body of water to sleep on boats in. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.